0: And a fly ball, pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping, and he got it! What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings from the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep, it's up, up, and away. A home run for Jeff Conine. Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning. Right field, there's a ball hit by Jeff Conine. The diving Eric Caros the right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame.
1: Outside the box with Jeff Conine. Jeff, you are back from your recruiting trip for FIU back home in South Florida. Uh, they saved the storms for you. I'm glad you were able to make it in. It's been pretty crazy, your classic summer thunderstorm. So if you hear some noise in the background, that's what that is for me over here. But excited to talk to you because we've got a lot of deadline conversation. I want to hear about your trip to Atlanta, your recruiting experience, and plenty more.
0: So uh, let's get after it today. All right. Sounds good. By you the way, were- I move. I moved, actually moved my flight um, from 4 o'clock this afternoon to 10 o'clock this morning For two reasons. I want to get home earlier because Atlanta just started wearing on me and it was brutally hot and no air movement at all. So, and because of what we're hearing in the background right now, uh, as those thunderstorms started firing up, I knew I was going to get delayed if I waited until four o'clock to fly in. So, it was a good move. I thought reason number two would be so that we could record the episode today, also. I mean, that's no, that was actually the third reason.
1: That was the third one. Okay.
0: Yeah. Because I forgot my jerseys and I didn't (laughs) want to uh, get on the road and have the streak broken. So this is number three. Yeah. So you forgot the jerseys and you forgot the mic, which is okay because this
1: was, this was your first out of state recruiting trip. So we're going to talk about that. It's not a recruiting trip. I
0: guess it's more of like a scouting trip. You would call it, right? Yeah. I would call it more of a scouting trip than, I mean, you are technically recruiting um, because if you do find a player that you really like, you can contact their coach and tell them that you're interested and then have the player call you. (laughs) It's all so ridiculous to me. I, it I get it. I get there's like a level of of
1: rules you have to have, but it's just bizarre that he could be standing right next to you and you can't talk to him, right? You can talk to his coach and he can listen. And it's just, it's the weirdest <laughs> dynamic I've ever, I've ever heard. I know you have to have your rules, but that's always interesting. Uh, but we were able to get this episode in. You're wearing a Jersey. Uh, I'm assuming all I can see is the piping. It's a white Jersey with red and black piping. So that's going to be a Reds Jersey, right? Nope. I got to know the team at least, right? Okay. Nationals. Oh, is it Scherzer? <laughs> Good one. Yes. Let's go. I needed. figured we I... might be uh, talking a little bit about him today. So that is awesome. That is awesome because, Oh, it looks great. You just turn around a fresh he's unbelievable by the way and that's really funny because i saw you kind of <laughs> trying to keep a straight face before we record because <laughs> i said hey i want to talk about scherzer um i honestly didn't notice it until it just clicked with me now that i got it right i was like ah that's why he I was holding back a little smile but there we go i got one right i, I what does that put me at now four, three, four, three out of six three. okay you bet that's
0: 500 that. man I mean, uh, in baseball, it's pretty darn good, but yeah, I don't, in baseball, know, about, it's pretty I don't know about a podcast, but uh, <laughs> baseball, you're stud. No, yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit different here. I, I got to do a bit better, but
1: I want to hear the Scherzer stuff because I'm really happy that you're tying in some timely stuff too. This is, this is some good stuff. You're getting, you're getting the hang of the jerseys now too, which helps me. It's like a little bit of a cue, but Scherzer is going to be on the move. Most likely it makes no sense for him to not be on the move because the Nats are done and, yep. you know, his, he's expiring after this year, get what you can get. And you're still going to be able to get something because. His contract is expiring. Don't say that. Don't say he's oh, expiring. Yeah. Sorry. His contract. <laughs> he's far from expiring. He's dealing. Yeah. He's, he's dealing. A stunt, man. So yeah, no, that's, that's a really important mm-hmm. distinction to make. He is shoving still uh, and, and has been spectacular, there's a lot of different places he can go. He's got a no trade clause. He wants to go to a contender. He says he prefers the West coast, but if they say, Hey, we want to send you, you know, to the rays or something, I doubt he'd be very upset with that. You don't know though. Uh, What do you think about just that whole situation as a 37 year old baseball player, you know, wanting to get sent to a contender. I know that's something that happened with you towards the end where you were sent to the Mets towards the end to try to bolster a contender. And uh, we got to talk about that actually too a little bit, that collapse, but as, as an older player as Scherzer is, obviously he wants the last few years to be in a spot where he's contending. Uh, but how much control do you really have over that kind of situation if you're a Max Scherzer?
0: Well, you know, when he signed his uh, monster deal that he's on right now, like you said, it's going to be up at the end of this year. Uh, he's got full control. He's got a no-trade clause that he can specify or he did specify certain teams that he could be traded to and certain teams that he could not be traded to. And, you know, those things are are negotiable. So even at the end of that deal, if they come to him and say, listen, uh, we know that this team, team X is not on your team list to be traded to, but they're in first place and they got a bunch of studs and they are more than likely going to win this year. Max Scherzer at that point could say, you know what, I'll throw that out the window. And yes, I will go to that team because I want to win. I want to win now. Um, Obviously, everyone wants to go to the Yankees. Everyone wants to go to the, 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 Red Sox, the Dodgers, those are the teams that everyone wants to be traded to. So, you know, it's the big markets. They know they're probably going to be contending at that time at the end of these contracts when they know they might be traded. So that's where everyone wants to go. And for Max Scherzer, he's got, he holds all the cards right now. He doesn't have to go anywhere. I'm sure uh, he probably has established a, a nice place in, in, in Washington. He's been there for a few years now. It's a great organization. They won a world series. So, you know, the, Washington. So the incentive to leave has got to be great enough for him to say, yes, this is where I'm going to go. And I want another ring.
1: Yeah, it's it's a good point because at the end of the day, he could just pitch the rest of the season out. He hits free agency even at 37 years old. There's going to be a ton of interest for him, given that he looks as good as ever. And I'll probably get a nice little two-year, crazy 60 million dollar deal or something like that, and go wherever the heck he wants. I mean, he's a Boris guy too, so you know he's gonna get he's gonna get his money, and he's not going to extend with anybody he's traded to. That's that's a Boris mo, right? So, uh, also, what's the story behind the jersey? I got so excited to talk Scherzer. Uh, what's the story behind getting that jersey signed?
0: Not a, a huge story on this one. Uh, when they came to the all-star game uh, here at Marlins park in 2017, ah. I went through the list of all the guys that I, I liked and respected and really wanted to get a Jersey signed by. And I ordered them all prior to, and um, I was lucky enough to get him to sign a Jersey for me. So like I said, um, one of the guys that I admire on the mound, I admire his work ethic, uh, him being a teammate. Uh, he's one of those gamer type pitches that pitchers that if, came to crunch time, I want him on the mound for me. And uh, that's why I'm wearing it today.
1: 100%. What do you, I mean, outside of the just attackers mentality that he has, I mean, he's earned that Mad Max type of uh, nickname, but what really impresses you the most in terms of just his ability to pitch? Uh, What makes him so hard to hit? Is it that unique release point uh, that it's a little bit of like a high three quarters, right? But he's able to really still have so much explosion out of his hand. What makes him so difficult, you think, from what you've seen?
0: Well, just that he's got that arm movement. I think he hides the baseball very well. He's got a three-quarter that uh, provides tremendous movement on his fastball. But when you look at his release point on the changeup as well, uh, for me, the changeup is the most devastating pitch in baseball. If you've got a good one, uh, that's the great equalizer. That's what turns a great pitcher into a phenomenal pitcher. And he's got one of the best changeups in the game. Um, And then he's got control of a devastating slider as well so you got three pitches that you can throw four strikes at any point in time on any count uh, as a hitter you know I can't really sit on anything from Max Scherzer I'm not going to sit in a count and say all right he's definitely going to throw me a fastball 2-0 because he could spin a 90 mile an hour slider up there as well um, and in a 2-1 count 3-1 count he can throw uh, his 85 mile an hour changeup. so um, that's what keeps you guessing so the, the uncertainty as a hitter the uncertainty of knowing what he's going to pitch and knowing what he's going to throw, the deception behind his pitches, that's what makes him so effective. And what's really unique about his contract situation is it actually
1: makes it a bit more desirable for a team uh, that may not typically want to take on, even if it's over the last few months, you know, a team like the A's or a team like the Rays, they don't want to take on $6 million over the last three, four months. I think mean, in this instance, it would be prorated out; it would be about 10 to $11 million left on the deal, but it's all deferred. Every penny that is left on this deal essentially is deferred until 2028. So a team like the Rays or the A's, both of which could say in 2028, we don't even know if we're still going to be in Tampa or Oakland. Who who knows what's going to be going on then? I don't care. Let's go win a World Series. So I, I think there's going to be a bigger market for him, which is very interesting. I also find it interesting that the Marlins just made a deal just before we recorded to send Starling Marte out to Oakland. And that was interesting. We knew Marte was going to go, but the Marlins were able to get Jesus Lazardo back, who's a local kid that, you know, me and Griffin had crossed paths with several times and played against at Stoneman Douglas and uh, same travel organization. Awesome kid. Phenomenal pitcher. I was shocked that he was coming over. I know he struggled this year, but as a 23-year-old, I was shocked that he was coming over. But the Marlins kicked in $4 million as well, essentially covering all of his salary for the rest of the season to bring in a Lizardo. So you wonder if something like that, if if the A's are chasing that four mil, if that's something that they may put towards a Scherzer or somebody else Uh, for a guy like Max Scherzer, who's going to be what a first ballot hall of famer, right? That's a guy that alone can can take any team that's right on the brink of contention over the top, right? A Red Sox, an A's, a, a Rays team. Any of those teams, Max Scherzer puts them into World Series conversation, right?
0: Well, that's what we're talking about in earlier episodes. When you look at the postseason, you need three studs at the top of your rotation to be able to be successful in the postseason, in my opinion. And if you've got two right now uh, in your rotation that you know are good one and two starters on those short series, uh, especially the the division series, and you add a Max Scherzer on top of that, I mean – that's lights out. That's absolutely lights out. And I think that's what the mindset of the teams going after him right now are, is that we need to add his arm to that bolt or not to the bullpen, to the starting rotation that we can dominate in the postseason. And Max Scherz is a game changer. And we didn't even get a chance really to talk much about the
1: rays going to get Nelly Cruz. Cause we've talked about Cruz already in our first handful of episodes is a guy that is an ageless wonder. They go get him and he's already just mashing home runs for them. There's always the increased value, as you said, for that exact reason, is is just pitching wins, especially in the postseason. But how important can the addition of just one big bat like that for the Rays be? And I'm a guy that looks at the numbers. And for me, I look at the Rays. No team in baseball strikes out more than the Rays do. Nelson Cruz, when it comes to hitting for power, no player hits for as much power as he does, like slugs as much as he does while maintaining a strikeout rate below 20 percent. So is there does that matter? Can a guy be a good equalizer in a lineup or does that not really matter as much? Is that more of somebody on the outside looking at it like me?
0: No, no, absolutely. It matters. You know, you take a guy like Nelson Cruz and you plug him into that four spot, you know, it's going to be your four spot every single day where the rays might have some, a little bit of flexibility in their lineup. They might change it around a little bit like that. You know that he's going to be in a set spot in the lineup every single day. And it gives a boost to that middle of that lineup. They know that they've got a, a proven run producer in that four spot, five spot, three spot, wherever they want to put him. And uh, I think it's like a domino effect. It gives the, the guy in front of him a little more confidence because he's probably going to see a, a few more pitches to hit. Uh, and he gives the guy behind him uh, the kind of like a, a confidence knowing that this guy, unfortunately might drive in my runs, but he's going to be producing. He's going to be on base a lot as well. So Uh, That's a huge boost to that lineup. And and like you said, for a a power hitter like Nelson Cruz to have such a low strikeout rate uh, and and don't discount the fact that, you know, he's a major league veteran of uh, what, a dozen years, 12, 13 years now. He's going to add a lot of guidance and leadership in that clubhouse uh, coming down to that postseason because, you know, the the Rays, they have a lot of turn up in their lineup most years because like the Marlins, like the A's, they can't afford to keep that clubhouse together. They can't afford to keep those lineups together very long. Because just the nature of their market and the nature, nature of their revenue, they can't afford it. So to bring him in and to add some stability, especially veteran presence in the middle of that lineup is going to be huge for the Rays. And I'm really excited to see what they do next
1: because, you know, they were two games away from winning it all last year. They trade Blake Snell. And of course, Blake Snell falls off a cliff. It's like, they always know something that nobody else knows. I always say, if the Rays want one of your prospects, just hold on to them because uh, they must know something that you don't. They, they've got some sort of different it's kind a formula.
0: Of- it's a magic formula that I'll tell you, it works for them. Like no other organization. They're consistently in the bottom three of uh, revenue every single year, but they get 90 plus wins every single year too. So it's magic dust, man. They got a pixie dust spreader over there in that organization. They just turned these prospects into superstars.
1: It's amazing. Do you think if they had a little bit more money to spend that, that they would just be the Dodgers or would they not be as successful? Like, are they successful because of this weird mold? Does it force them to be more unique? Would they compromise that if they had more money? I mean, what do you think about that?
0: I don't know. I, you know, that brings up a good point. I think they've, they've relied, relied on this the system that they have so much because they're strapped for cash and it might upset that balance if you can go out and and afford anybody you want to. So, uh, I think it makes everybody in the organization work a little harder, knowing that you have no money to spend, that you have to find these diamonds in the rough, this talent, you have to go out and identify it and produce it year after year. Um, but they don't take off years, man. It's just like every single year they, they keep on putting this, this lineups together and this pitching staff together that dominate, And you're like, how do they keep doing it? And I think you're right. I think if, you know, if they had a lot of money to spend, it would upset that balance and they wouldn't be as successful as they are. And what do you think? I mean, you
1: got to see the Marlins go through a a process of where it was very real that the franchise could move had they not gotten the stadium in Miami. And we're seeing similar threats. I think the A's are more on the brink right now than Tampa, but Tampa's also in a situation as well where if they don't get their new stadium approved, I know that's something that's a lot of pressures on Oakland right now that the team will move. Uh, What do you think about the probability given? I mean, I know there's a lot of politics and other things involved. How much of it is usually just a threat and how much of it is usually this is could really possibly happen, especially with Oakland, a team that has pretty good history out there and another team that not quite to the raise as of late, but still just finds a way I mean, the original Money ballers they find a way to always be in the hunt and always be competitive. It would be a real shame to see that team leave there. I know they don't have their stadium, but there's some really faithful fans out there.
0: Yeah, they got some crazy fans too. Um, they're faithful and they're um, obnoxious as a visiting <laughs> player, like most obnoxious, maybe in the big leagues. But, uh, you know, you look at a lot of it's posturing. You know, it's, it's politics, exactly. posturing and politics. You got you to gotta know that we're going to, because both sides get a lot out of it. Obviously the Oakland A's are in that market. They've been in that market for a long, long time. Um, they get a lot out of it, but so does the city of Oakland. Uh, they get a lot out of that team as well with taxes and revenues and people coming in to watch ball games. And you've seen the advent of all these brand new stadiums come about and they're beautiful. I mean, every single park in America is probably new compared to both Tampa and Oakland and, Why not? And they, they deserve a new stadium. They they've spent long enough in that. Let me tell you, Oakland Alameda is awful. It's not a great, I will say though, it has the best grass on planet earth. Their grass is the most pristine grass you'll ever see in your entire life. It's like, it's like a a fairway at Augusta year round. I mean, it's the most beautiful grass they have, but the surroundings are awful. The facilities are awful. Um, So when you add all that together, they deserve a new stadium, and I think that would be a, a huge boost to that market and to that team and then you got Tampa over on the other coast, and you know they play in this place that you know has been called the mausoleum and it's it's just uh, it's a, uh, it's not great either i I will say though they had the best clubhouse and the best clubhouse manager amazing. of all time. This guy was amazing, his name is guy, and uh, he ran the best clubhouse because he knew he knew he had to make up for the lack of uh, facilities and the lack of comforts in the stadium itself. Um, But the clubhouse was amazing. Uh, But that being said, they needed a new stadium as well. And uh, I think it might be more real for Tampa to move out of there before Oakland will, just because California has got so many options um, to have a new stadium built. And even if the Oakland A's have to move, it's not going to be far from Oakland.
1: Exactly. And the thing with Tampa, too, is is that they're not even in Tampa. They're in St. Petersburg, and that's not that close to Tampa. It's like they're what, 30, 40 minutes away? Yeah. And the Lightning, the hockey team, they do incredibly incredibly with the way they draw. Of course, they've won back-to-back titles, but even before that, they were doing a great job drawing. I really think if you put it in downtown Tampa, they would do very well in bringing in fans there. But uh, I don't really know what that situation is exactly. But to, to sum it up with the trop, it's when you have fly balls getting stuck in the roof, uh, you've probably got a problem.
0: Uh, and and when, when your stadium actually affects the outcomes of games, that's yes. not good. It can't happen.
1: like No, that. It no, it's a, it's a great point. In the major leagues, you cannot have your stadium affecting the, the outcomes of ball games and, and a funny thing to tie in the, the Oakland uh, stadium, you know, my, my father and I, for those listening that may not know the story, my dad and I were trying to go to all 30 baseball stadiums and uh, we did the whole West Coast trip. So we started in Seattle and then we went all the way down the coast and there were some really pretty stadiums. I mean, Seattle is beautiful. San Francisco is absolutely gorgeous. San Diego, yep. unbelievable. And we yep. go to Oakland. And we we take a picture in front of every stadium to have that. Right. So there's always that grand entrance and we take the picture uh, and we're walking around the stadium for about 15 minutes. And my dad trying to find a grand entrance. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And we go, my dad goes up to one of the employees and says, Hey, uh, where's the main entrance? We want to get a picture. And he goes, you're looking at it. (laughs) And we look up, it's, it's just concrete with a little drape down of, I, I believe at the time it was whoever the player was at the time, this was like 10 years ago, but it was one of the A's players that had been there for longer than two years, just hung up on a banner over concrete. And we took that picture and that that was it. I got to dig that one up somewhere, but that, that was it. Uh, And and that was one of the funnier memories for me uh, going through all those stadiums, especially when you go from San Diego to, and San Francisco and even Seattle, which was a really cool environment. I thought we got to see, we got to see, uh, you know, Felix Hernandez throw. And that was awesome as well. Uh, Super nice guy too. And that was really cool. But the stadiums now What also blew my mind. You talk about how so many new ones have come about. I don't know what the exact number is, but somebody told me when I was at the all-star game, that Coors Field is now one of the oldest stadiums in major league baseball. I'm going to have to fact check that one, but if that's true, that's pretty nice. I mean, obviously you've got Fenway, and you've got some of those really old ones, Wrigley, whatever it may be, but it's kind of believable if you think about all the new stadiums across the landscape, that's nuts. And, and you wonder uh, how long some of those old staples will be able to uh, keep going, but that's a big part of baseball as well.
0: Well, they've talked about, you know, both uh, Wrigley and Fenway having new ballparks put in there and the uproar that they got from the fan base was like, if you do, we're not coming back. We're not, we're not going to a new stadium. So I don't think they ever will. And both those places are awful as a player to go into. Are they, are they that bad? They were awful. Well, I mean, it's improved since then, because when I first went to Fenway, the field itself was terrible as well. And I've heard since then they've redone the field. So the playing surface is at least nice now. And I think they've improved the clubhouse facilities and maybe the cage, but our cage is out in the, in the middle of, um, you know, center field wall. Uh, It was spidery and, and dusty and dirty and you damp and you walk in there and that's the, that's the cage you got to hit in. Um, you had to go across the field, out in front of all the fans, to, to go to the batting cage. Uh, the clubhouse is super small, and lockers were tiny, and uh, all that. You know, they say, "Oh, that's you know, that's ambiance, that's the 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 allure of Fenway Park." I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't care about ambiance. I like it when I first walk in there, and I say, "Wow, this is Fenway." Now I want nice stuff. I mean, as a player, you want nice cage to hit in, you want a nice locker room and um, all that stuff. But the feel itself, I I couldn't believe how awful it was. It was so bad that I wouldn't even take ground balls uh, during batting practice because I took a couple off the chin. I said, all right, that's it. So I'm not doing any more of that. But uh, since then, I know the playing surface has been redone. So that's nice. And I think the same has been done at Wrigley. So at least the playing surfaces are, are playable now.
1: Well, it's amazing how long they went. And I know we talked about this where with with the stadiums that you did well in and didn't do well in with how long they went with Wrigley, just not having lights and just not playing night games there well into when they were capable of putting lights there and they still just kind of were persistent with the day games. But why do you think it is with Fenway that and even Wrigley, I feel like I understand how it's a little bit more dated in some aspects, but it's also still a stadium you could just really make things very nice on the inside. I mean, we've seen some construction miracles as to what you can do to an old house or an old building and make it look modern and nice. Is there, is there actually a level of ownership just saying, Hey, this is part of the ambiance"? is why they would not make the the clubhouse nicer. Or was the home clubhouse wonderful. And then was the away clubhouse just not really that nice.
0: Well, I know they've redone the home clubhouse at Wrigley. I know they did that. So Uh, And I think they did it at at Fenway as well. But, you know, uh, with the visitors, why, why care about the visitors? Um, You know, I'm sure they've upgraded a little bit. They had to have upgraded if they did everything else. I'm sure they, they made it a little bit nicer than, than it was when I played there, which, you know, was going back, shoot, almost 16 years now. So I'm sure they've done, they've done something, but I know they've done the, the home clubhouses to make it better for the home players. What was your favorite spot to play at? Not like offense aside, like how you
1: perform there aside. Cause I know you're going to say cores because you never got out. No,
0: I mean, I always, uh, Camden yards for me was just, yeah. even though that became my home ballpark. Um, I remember walking into that stadium right after I got traded, which is only three days to go, uh, left in spring training. So when I got to Baltimore, the Orioles were on the road. They're playing Cuba. They were in Cuba playing the Cuban national team. That's pretty cool. So I walked into an empty Uh, Camden Yards basically I had my stuff with me I I walked in they had my locker set up and I got to walk out on the field with nobody there and it was just like the kind of you know the uh the emergency lights are kind of illuminating the field and and I just took my breath away I'm like wow this is a cathedral of baseball I uh from that moment on I did that every year I came to to Camden Yards after spring training I'd walk out in the field when it was all dark and and I just sit there and take it in. And it was one of my favorite spots to play or my favorite spot to play.
1: It's it's really a beautiful stadium. And, and everybody had told me, I remember you had, had been saying it too. That's a park that is one of the best out there, if not the best. And it seems to be the consensus for everybody. And when I went out there, just, I always do a lap. I always do a lap around the whole ballpark and just having Utah street there and the building, you know, adjacent to it. And just the the whole, it has a very warm feel Uh, it's hard to put into words and that's kind of how you know that there's something bigger than, than what you're able to describe uh, when there's a stadium like Camden Yards. So I want to go back. I I went years ago and I would love to go back and see it. The Orioles have not been one of the more desirable teams to watch, but they're, they're coming along uh, through the farm system. And that's where we're at here, where in this deadline, a lot of teams are either buyers or sellers, either, either, really trying to replenish with young talent, or they're trying to cash in on some of their young talent to make their playoff push. Uh, there's been some interesting developments, and one of them, uh, since you've been gone, has been that the Nationals, we knew they'd be sellers, and we knew that Max Scherzer would ultimately go after they went 6-16 six and 16 in July. But the surprising thing was that they said, everybody's available except for Juan Soto. And I was expecting and Trey Turner, but it just ended at Juan Soto. Trey Turner's contract expires after next season. So that clearly means they don't think that they're going to be able to extend him. Maybe they already tried and they just were way too far apart. And if you got, if you got to trade him now or at least in the off season to maximize that value, Trey Turner has turned into one of the best shortstops in baseball. He's at 30 home runs over his last 155 games. And that's not even a, a part of his game. Like that wasn't it. That's not supposed to be what he does. Right. He's the fastest guy in the game. He's a great defender. He steals bags as much as anybody back-to-ball skills that are rivaled, and now he's hitting for power? I mean, this guy could be a top-three shortstop in baseball. Now he's available. What do you think about the idea of, you know, a team's going to have to give up a massive haul? And in my experience, we've seen some good trades for both sides. We've seen some miserable trades for both sides. I always go back to, like, Miguel Cabrera with the Marlins. At the time, it was a quote-unquote haul. None of those players really panned out for them. Uh, You look at the Yelich trade. At the time, it was a quote-unquote haul. None of those players panned out. I could give you deals where it went the other way around too, but at what point uh, are you giving up too much for a singular player? Like, is that hard to justify as, as someone who played? Because I feel like when people look at it, they look at the six pieces that are going as literal pieces and not individual human beings of individual capabilities. And I feel like as someone who played it, it might be really hard to justify six players for two or four players for one.
0: Well, I mean, you just said it, um, you know, prospects are a hit or miss. Even though they're prospects, and you look at the top 100 prospects in baseball right now, may, maybe 30 will ever even make it to the big leagues, and maybe less than that will ever have an impact at the big league level. So, uh, when you put all this package of of like you say, human beings together, and they are, you know, it's it's almost like we feel like you know pawns in a in a big game at some point where so. we'll just pluck all these guys off of these minor league rosters and we'll all trade them for one guy or, or two guys and hope everything works out. Well, the team that's trading for all those pieces are hoping that they can develop that talent and have something that comes to the big leagues and helps them win a championship. And you just don't know, you just don't know. Even the best prospects uh, that come along the wire, you think, uh, yeah, sure, there, there, are some, there are some usually some can't miss guys that you know, just by what they've done and, and their makeup and the way they, they go about their business, that they're gonna be a major league contributor. But there's a lot that you just don't know. They're raw talent, and um, when they get to the big leagues or when they get into your system, they may never pass go, go past double A. Yep,
1: and that's the tough part. Is there somebody that you felt like when you saw through the minor leagues just a, an incredible prospect that – or maybe not even when you were playing, maybe after that, that you just were shocked to to see not really reach their potential that you would have said, hey, that guy's can't miss?
0: Um, gosh, off the top of my head, I can't really think of of many. You know, I played with um, a couple guys in the royal system because I'm going up at the same time they are, and I see them paralleling uh, my career, and these guys would just tear up the minor leagues, tear it up. They'd go to the big leagues when an opportunity arose. And, you know, we talked about this in an early episode, how the outside the line stuff affected them so much mentally that they could not perform at a big league level. So they got sent back down and they'd tear it up again at AAA and they'd go back up and they could not perform mentally at that big league level. So they got sent back down. So, you know, it takes a special person uh, not only talent wise, but makeup wise to be able to make it. And when you say, you've heard the saying a million times is that it's really, really hard to make it to the major league, but it's tougher to stay there.
1: Yep. Absolutely. And so to tie it back to the Trey Turner point, he's going to, he's going to net a bunch of pawns, but like really good pawns.
0: So he's I don't at, know what you Well, he's it. at a premium position too. And what yeah. he's doing at a premium position with power and speed, uh, we haven't seen a guy like that in a long time. And it's like, uh, wow, you got to wonder why the nationals who have money. I mean, they've got a lot in their coffers. Would want to give up on a guy like that. He's a cornerstone for me. That I'd want to stick around as long as I could.
1: It's shocking to me, and you wonder if it's just his asking price is just outrageous. Or-
0: well, he might be a Boros client too, and that's yeah. uh he owns. I think he owns literally owns half that team. uh At one point, I know when I was with the Marlins, I think he represented like twelve or fourteen guys on their major league roster. So, um you know, that that could be. You could look at that and say, you know what the asking price is going to be too high, and we have to let it go from him now so we can get something for him. Well,
1: well generally, the Marlins wouldn't wouldn't really deal that often with with Boris, right
0: They almost wouldn't even bother uh, because it was just too difficult, right? Yeah, and you know what it's a you look at the team as well. So the team says he's up after next season, we'd love to have him, but I don't think we can afford him or the asking price is gonna be too high. So as you said, we got to do it the year before. Right now, Trey Turner is as high a trade value he's ever gonna be. And to be able to put him out there and you may get uh, just a a package that you cannot deny. You cannot refuse. It's too good to be true. We're gonna take that and we're gonna take our chances that we can develop those guys into major leaguers. When uh, you've got an established guy that's a superstar at a premium position, That's the chance you got to take if you're the Washington Nationals. And on the other side, if you're in charge of a ball club, you know, let's say you're
1: the Yankees, right? The Yankees, they they need more than a shortstop, but they're only two and a half games out of the wild card somehow, somehow. And uh, it's been a disaster for them. They're going to get potentially Luis Severino back, Corey Kluber, some other guys that can help them on the pitching side. But is it worth it? Is it justifiable to to give up four or five of those? future pieces in the minor leagues, or maybe even a piece that's young on your team now for a Trey Turner uh, when, when you, you know what you're getting with Trey, right? I mean, that's something you do in two seconds, right? If you're in charge of the Yankees.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know exactly what you're getting in Trey Turner. He's a great clubhouse guy. He's a, he's a threat on the base pass. You can hit the ball, in the ballpark. I mean, for me, uh, if I'm the Yankees or any of those big power, you know, the big power organizations that have vast resources, they get limitless uh, deep pockets. I would, I would go for that for sure. I would give up prospects all day long if I'm going to try to win a championship. So are you more of the Dave Dombrowski type
1: of attitude where it's like, we'll find more prospects. If I can cash in and get big league talent, I will. I think there's definitely a a level of, of prospect hugging. A lot of people like to call it where you have the great farm system. That's, that's cool. And that's really helpful. I look at prospects. If we're going to dehumanize them even more, uh, we might as well just go all the way. I look at them as like like currency, right? Because you, you look at it as a prospect as as a way to to purchase. Uh, players that are at the big league level. So you build that farm system to have more currency. You hope some of those players pan out. And I think the Padres are a perfect example of that. They have Fernando Tatis translate into a big leaguer, but they also traded in some of that currency to go get the Blake Snells, to go get the Clevengers, to go get some of those other pieces. And I think the teams that approach it that way do a lot better instead of the teams that just load up their system and say, I hope all these guys pan out and don't end up really cashing in on some of them to flip them back around for trades. Uh, so that's where it's really interesting on the deadline time. And I'm excited to see that on the last thing I want to talk about, because this was something we discussed a little bit in the Rob Nen interview, who, by the way, was amazing. I know that's a long time friend of yours. And uh, he was a ton of fun. And if you didn't hear that episode yet, Go check out our previous episode from a few days ago where we talked to Rob Nen, part of the 97 team with Jeff and uh, just an unbelievable career as well as a closer over 300 saves. Uh, But when you talk about some of the additions for you guys, it was Darren Dalton, who is not Trey Turner, but just having that little boost off the bench, what they bring to the clubhouse and all of those things. How much does it really help you? If you're a team that's right on the brink, when you see a new face come into the clubhouse uh, that you know can help you uh, win ball games. Does that really galvanize it? The the, the group, or is it kind of just like, hey, welcome aboard. Like let's let's keep going. Like, I, is that something that people kind of overestimate a little bit?
0: Yes and no. I mean, like with uh, Darren Dalton's case, you know, he was at the tail end of his career. Uh, he was having all kinds of physical issues, but the leadership that he brought into our clubhouse, he stepped in right away and and took control of that clubhouse, which is rare, I think, but it helped us. Um, it, it fit in with our culture. It fit in with our veteran leadership very, very well, where some guys might get traded to a team and they might be bitter at uh, getting let go of the other by their previous organization. And they're coming in again into a situation that they're unfamiliar with, uncomfortable with. And they're, they're not that leader. They're not that guy in the clubhouse that likes to take charge. So that could also hurt a team as much as help, even though the guy might be a stud player coming in. If he doesn't gel real well with his new teammates and doesn't fit into the way they do business, the way they do things, uh, that could end up backfiring on him. A hundred percent. And that was a little bit of the concern, and it's obviously gone way worse
1: and more extreme than anybody probably thought it would have gone. But with Trevor Bauer to the Dodgers, obviously that's a very, very specific and fluid situation. But even just with his personality traits, I thought that that might be a bad situation for them because you're taking a team that just won the world series. Obviously you're bringing a Cy Young winner. There's no way around what he's capable of on the field, but like you said, that there's a level of disruption there. And there's a reason why, even if he's reinstated, there was an LA times article that just came out that said the vast majority of the team doesn't want him back. Imagine not wanting a Cy Young winner back. I think that really shows it kind of sparked that thought in my head. It really shows the importance of, Uh, the behind the scenes stuff as well. And that's why I love the Nelson Cruz trade for the Rays. It seems to be that everybody says he's an A++ clubhouse guy. Everybody loves him. You saw all the quotes from the young players with the twins that were like, borderline teary eyed uh, that, that he was leaving. They called him dad. Uh, So, you know, that's, that's, that's a crazy, crazy concept, but it's also something that makes sense. I mean, he could be almost uh, the father of some of these players. He's what 42. Some of these guys are 20 years old, right? So it's amazing in baseball. I think more than any other sport where you have that, where you can have a 19 year old, competing against a 42 year old and they might still just be right at this level playing field and, and going right at it with each other. And that's the really cool thing about baseball, but you were that 40 plus year old guy going to a playoff team or a team that thought they were a playoff team uh, with the Mets and they fell apart. What did you do to tear that team down when you
0: showed up? (laughs) Yeah, I was the, I was that cancer that just, that was the the undoing (laughs) of the glue that, that held that whole machine together
1: inside agent for, for the Marlins still just trying to take them down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it was uh Oh man, that was crazy. You know, as you said, I was at the end of my career. I knew that was going to be my last year and Wayne Kripsky was the GM for the Reds at the time. And he came up to me and he's like, Hey, Jeff, he goes, I know this is it for you. And um, we're not going anywhere. Would you like to go somewhere and possibly have a playoff run? I'm like, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, cool. that's what you live for is. Yeah. It's very cool. Very cool of him uh, to do that for me. But Uh, just before the deadline, like literally right at the deadline, he goes, all right, you're going to New York. And I'm like, so, you know, the Mets were way ahead at that point. They had a great team, uh, you know, Delgado and Sean Green and Tom Glavin and um, you know, all these awesome players, uh, Jose Reyes. And um, when you looked at the situation and being able to go to a playoffs or make a playoff run in New York, I mean, what else could I fulfill in my career? And I already had two world series titles. And um, you know, those are the only two times I'd ever been to the playoffs was with Florida. But when you look at a playoff run with New York, I don't think there's any place you can come close to having a playoff run with maybe Boston, maybe Chicago, but those are the three cities you want to go to the playoffs with those teams because that fan base just goes absolutely berserk. Um, So I was super excited going there and we had, We were playing well. We had a seven-game lead with 17 games to play, which is almost how can you possibly squander 17 games left to go in the season? You got a seven-game lead. Well, we lost seven games in a row to the Phillies, who were in second place. And, you know, everyone says, oh, the Marlins knocked you out. And we needed help. Even if we were to beat the Marlins in that last game of the season, uh, we needed help from the Phillies. We needed them to lose. And then there was going to have to be a playoff game to find out who would have been the wild card. So um, it was just a, a crazy situation, um, but you know, going over there, it was a very divided clubhouse and it was a situation where um, I don't think everybody was on the same page and it showed it showed at the end when things fell apart. Um, everybody went their separate ways. And, and it was kind of a, it was an unfortunate situation and it was a sad way to end the career that i thought, you know, man, we're going to go to the playoffs in new york and have something really special.
1: And you you mentioned now just the divided clubhouse again and it all ties back together of just how important that aspect is when it comes to to winning ball games and that's what i really like about the giants. I watch the giants play and it seems like all those guys really enjoy each other. They've been playing together forever. Another team that i see it with is the mariners. Mariners are somehow eight games over 500. They're way overachieving, uh, but they, I watched the games and they're so hyped up for each other. You, you can just feel it when, when a team really has that chemistry, what really contributes to the negative side. Obviously there's a lot of variables, but without even getting into specifics about the situation with the Mets, I, I think, you know, from the outside, it, it seems like you had a lot of veterans, a lot of guys that were very accomplished I believe what Beltron was also in there. You had Glavin, like you said, David Wright, Reyes. And not to say that any of those guys had anything wrong with them, but you have a lot of very accomplished individuals. Uh, And I think that word individual is probably important there, right? Is it it almost problematic in some instances where you have too many guys that uh, maybe have – proven it themselves, have done it a lot and had success themselves where uh, they don't lean on the other teammates as much. They kind of go about their own business, which is okay to have guys like that on a team. But I feel like that Mets team was almost comprised solely of players like that.
0: Yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, You know, with the exception of those Yankees teams that I that I mentioned before, from 96 to 2000, 2001, um, those were probably the best teams I ever played against. And they had every reason to have. Uh, ind- individual at every single position because they were an all-star at every position. And you thought that those guys were just like, uh, you know, whatever they, they wouldn't play together well as a team, but they were the most uh, accomplished team that I've ever played against. They played the game the right way. They're very, uh, went about their business uh, the right way. It was just, and you know, you looked at Joe Torre for maybe being able to get into that clubhouse and manage 25 big personalities, because like I said, they were, you know, a superstar at every position and to get all those egos together on the same page and, and for a common goal, create a team that was second to none, you know, that is a, uh, a masterful performance is to be able to put all that together and, and be successful with it.
1: And how much of that is culture coming from the top from ownership? Does ownership have that much of an impact with the culture from top to bottom? Or is that, no, from I... the coach? is that from the manager? Is that from the GM? You know, where does that really come from?
0: It's a little bit of everything. You know, I I think in this day and age of you look at strictly metrics and uh, analytics, you don't look at the person per se. You look at what they're able to do in a baseball field. And I think we've kind of gotten away from, all right, what's he going to be like in the clubhouse? Is he going to be a good teammate? Is he going to be a guy that's going to do what he can to help the team win over what his individual stats might be? And when I look at, you know, the couple teams that I won on, that's what were hallmarks of those teams is that everyone was selfless. You know, they, they knew what had to be done to win baseball games. And guys did that on a nightly basis. So I knew that if I didn't get the job done, the guy behind me was going to get it done uh, with a sack bunt or a, a move a runner over a sack fly or, um, you know, throw into the right base. Um, it was just a very fundamentally sound team. teams that I played on that were winners. And, um, you know, I think we've kind of neglected to look at the personalities of guys now to get in the clubhouse. And because hey, it's seven months of the year, you're with these guys seven months of the year, you're with them sometimes as much as your own family. And if you don't get along, just like your own family, bad things happen.
1: Absolutely. And, and especially because you, you don't get that buy in quite as much as well. Right. In that hunger, because I feel like when, when you see that championship team, they're all so happy for each other. Right. They won for each other. It's not just an individual accomplishment. And you can really see that based on the celebration and based on uh, the way the players take it all in. So looking at now where Max Scherzer is going to go to wrap it up here. We don't know yet. And by the time this episode, I'm going to have to publish it right away because it's always my biggest. <laughs> he, might, he might already be traded arm. He might be gone literally, already. Literally. I just checked MLB trade rumors just to make sure, because that's the crazy thing is it's so fluid at the deadline. And I know you're going to have a really good story about how fluid your situation was in the next episode, uh, which is one of my favorite stories. Uh, so stay tuned for that one on the next episode on that's Friday. Called. Yeah. A little tease there for that one. Yeah. yeah, They taught me that in journalism school. That's that's what, what of course, all all of that money and uh, all those years, a little bit of teasing, but the, uh, the thing with Scherzer here is he's going somewhere, like we said, and it's going to be a very, very big impact. We said, he, he said he wants West coast. Where do we think he's going to go? Do we think that he holds out on the West coast? Uh, What team do you think ends up ponying up here and getting him with the deferral of payment could the Dodgers sweep in here? I feel like that should just get vetoed. Uh, they should just David Stern right. NBA style veto that uh, because I just want to see him go somewhere else. Wealth but of riches, yeah. What do you think? Is, there, is there, Do you see a team like the Giants or maybe an unexpected team because of the money deferral? Like, does that make it more uh, possible for any team? Uh, what's, your, what's your final prediction here on where you think he could? Well,
0: I, you know, when you look at, getting toward the end of your career and 37s, getting up there for a pitcher. But as we've stated, Max Scherzer is still dominating. He's still one of the top five pitchers in the game right now. So uh, just knowing uh, what I know about the, the giants clubhouse, I wouldn't be surprised if we see him go to San Francisco, just to, put them over the top as far as their offense has been performing very well this year. As a collective, they don't have one super stud guy that's just knocking crazy numbers out of the ballpark where they're getting contributions up and down that entire lineup. And their pitching staff has really been carrying the load. So if you can add an arm like Max Scherzer down, down at the uh, stretch to, to bolster that bolster that pitching staff, that'd be huge for them. And like you said, LA might come in with some ridiculous uh, cache of uh, prospects, because of the uncertain Bauer situation, they might want to put Scherzer back in that uh, starting rotation because we don't know what's going to happen with that guy. And they might want that certainty that, that he brings as far as you know what you're going to get in a Max Scherzer coming down. So I'm going to say it's going to be one of those two teams.
1: I love San Fran also because I think that there's going to be a level of Scherzer being excited to pitch to a Buster Posey. Right? When's the last time Scherzer's really pitched to a stud-stud catcher? Uh, that you know future potentially future Hall of Fame catcher as well Uh, that would just be so fun to watch those two work together and you mentioned the clubhouse I think that's a really good fit I think he kind of fits that same attitude of the Brandon Crawford's of some of those other guys that have been there they've won before and they've all they they all know it's probably one of their last shots too Crawford's 34 Posey's 34 belts right around there in the mid-30s that this is a team that maybe they could get back next year but this is probably their best shot and for Scherzer, if he goes to San Francisco, unless he signs in, you know, after this year, somewhere that's a perennial contender, this could be one of his last shots too. Uh, so I like that too. I'm going to double down with you on the giants. I would love to see it because I've been joking that I'm a giants fan now. So I'm on the bandwagon <laughs> fully and uh, I would love to see it. I love Mike Skramski as well. It's been cool to see him put it together. Uh, and that's a really fun team and they've been taking control of the Dodgers this year. It's that's, that's the one game that I'll watch every single time it's on late at night. Those two teams, it's such a good rivalry and those teams are both playing phenomenally. So it's going to be really fun watching the NL West down the stretch here. Last question I'll ask you then is how do you think it finishes in the NL West one, two and three between the Padres, the Dodgers and the giants?
0: Well, um, I would, I I would love to see, I would love to see the giants hold on. Um, but I, I just think that the Dodgers have too much firepower. I think that they're going to they're gonna hit a stride here in August that's uh, really going to kind of vault them above the Giants. So I'm going to say Dodgers, Giants, Padres. We know that there's going to be three playoff teams as well because the two wild cards are going to come out of those, out of the West yeah, probably. They
1: literally ruined the wild card.
0: Yeah, they ruined the wild There's no chance. There's nobody else that's going to be in the picture because these guys they are they're so good. All three teams are so good but it's going to be interesting. You know, that, that's my prediction. Um, that's my feeling, but it could go the opposite way. I mean, the giants could have that, that veteran leadership. And especially if they get a guy like Scherzer toward the, the stretch and say, you know what, they're not going to relinquish that hold on there. And then the giants, I mean, the the Padres and the Dodgers to have to battle it out for the, that one wildcard spot, which is going to be a hell of a game. <laughs>
1: uh, it's unbelievable that that could actually be the outcome because I really want to see a full series. You know, I, I think, when you have those two teams, I don't want one game. I, I want at least a three-game series between those two. But like you said, it's going to be a hell of a game. But that's another reason to go get a Scherzer. Is if you only have one ball game, I mean, maybe they'd rather throw Kevin Gossman. I mean, Gossman's been unbelievable. But in in a must-win game, I'm going to Mad Max. I don't care how good Gossman's been. Gossman could not give up a run the rest of the season. I'm still going to Scherzer in in, in a must-win game. Uh, And I think you'd probably say the same thing for a first ballot Hall of Famer. So we have your story coming up in the next episode. We'll have a lot more to talk about on the deadline because by the time we talk again, there'll be plenty that is happening. Uh, So stay tuned for the deadline episode coming up on Friday and a lot more to come up in these next 48 hours, as you can attest to every minute, something can happen up until the last few seconds.
0: It's crazy. It's a crazy time of year, both on both sides of the ball. Like, you know, the guys in the clubhouse that know they are possibly being traded, you know, they, they hear all the rumors and the uh, guys are asking them all the time. It's almost like whispering in the clubhouse. What'd you hear today? What'd you hear today? And um, so it's an exciting time and it's a scary time for some guys. And it's in a uh a time for someone to leave a situation that might it might not be great and go to a winner so um this is always a uh a fluid time of the year and a very exciting time of the year so i'm gonna go
1: publish this podcast before a bunch of things change all simultaneously (laughs) so let's get that out there uh but that'll do it for this episode we'll talk to you on friday